Hello, and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can find our work at publicbooks.org. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show in your podcast app and even maybe rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook. So today we're actually talking about Facebook, arguably the platform that brought social networking into the mainstream. And I think Facebook is something that people have a lot of strong feelings about. It has over 2 billion users across the globe, and for many, you know, it enables genuine connections across time and space, but it has also generated very real problems in terms of how people talk to each other and how companies and governments can use it to their own advantage, often at the expense of us, its users. My guest today is Siva Vaidyanathan, who has literally written the book on Facebook. I am the Robertson Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. I'm the author of Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. What I really love about Siva's work on Facebook is that he validates all of those feelings about it, the positives as well as the criticisms. Siva has spent many years trying to crack through the surface of a company that notoriously does not want its surface to be cracked. So I'm really excited to have him here to help us unpack the consequences of this massive social network that Mark Zuckerberg created in a Harvard dorm room in 2004. So the first question that we're asking everyone is, what does being online feel like to you in 2020? So it can be a description, a metaphor, a word. Um, Normal. Uh, And that's largely because... Mm. There is no online offline <laughs> distinction anymore, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I have a I have a device that is connected to AT and T that sits either on my body or within arm length arms length of my body every minute of mm. almost every day, right? And so it might as well be my body. It might as well be part of it, right? We um, uh, we are all cyborgs in that sense. Awesome, thank you. And so I think that we'll end up probably covering your work across multiple domains, but I think that we'll most likely end up focusing today on the book that you just named, your book about Facebook. So I'm wondering if you could just for context, give our listeners kind of a quick summary or elevator speech about what anti-social media is about. Yeah. So uh, as I was looking around the world between about 2014 and let's say November 2016, I noticed a couple of disturbing trends. One of those was that politics, as electoral politics specifically, seemed to be uh, getting more Facebook dependent around the world. And you know what? The United States was not the leading indicator of that. I was watching the rise of the BJP in India Um, a religious nationalist party that had been in the opposition for many decades, but for the past five years has really run India with an iron fist. And, and the BJP rose along with the popularity of Facebook. So 
I was looking at that. I was watching the rise of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. I was watching the ways that a lot of the post-Soviet states were fraying and their fragile democracies were being torn apart. And a lot of it was happening because of what was happening on various social media platforms, specifically Facebook, which is larger. So I've been watching all of that. I'd been teaching classes on privacy and surveillance. And for that, I was collecting a lot of scholarship about Facebook for use in classes. And then November 2016, like so many people, um, shook me up and I was trying to figure out what possible use I am in the world and what, what, you know, what good I am and what I could contribute. And one of the things I realized was that I, I needed to tell this story of how, you know, globally we had become so dependent on Facebook for so much. And I wanted to look at all the ramifications of that and not just the ways it undermines democracy, for which I think there is a very clear mm. case. I think we also needed to concede the extent to which uh, people have a personal relationship with and through Facebook, and that is ver valuable. So at this point, two and a half billion people use Facebook regularly around the world. They are not dupes. They are not fools. They get something of value out of it. So I wanted to uh, explore both of those factors. The fact is Facebook is terrifically valuable for individuals and yet terrible for us collectively. Not unlike my car, right? My car is really nice for me. It makes my life better, more convenient, <laughs> right? It makes everything easier. I'm a big fan of my car, has all the features I want. It, our cars collectively are terrible for us. Right. <laughs> so that was one conclusion. I think the, the stronger, larger, bigger conclusion, the takeaway I wanted people to have from the book was that while Facebook is perhaps the best tool we have ever had for motivation, whether that's personal or hobby-based or political, it is about the worst tool we've ever had for deliberation and that democratic republics need tools that foster both motivation and deliberation. We've gone all in on motivation. We need to do a lot more for deliberation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really key point to think about motivation versus deliberation, how they're different, how they work together, and how Facebook has sort of splintered them in that sense. But I actually kind of want to start by zooming out quite a lot and thinking about Facebook's relevance, even to people who don't actually use Facebook. Um, you just said how there are about 2.5 billion Facebook users, but of course, there are about 7.5 billion people on the planet. So there are a lot of people who don't actively log on. I think we're also seeing an increasing generational divide where, you know, or older folks are on it a lot, but, you know, millennials like myself included have either deleted our profiles or don't use it as much. And I'm pretty sure that to Gen Z, Facebook is majorly uncool. So essentially there is a sector of people in the world who are not actively going onto facebook.com all the time, but I'm guessing that you would argue that Facebook still matters in a sense to those people because it's shifted the world in these really big ways. So can we start by addressing those people? If Facebook doesn't apply to my day-to-day -day life, why is it important for me nonetheless to understand the influence that Facebook has had on the world? Okay. So let me start from the big number, 7.4, 7.5 billion people around the world. Subtract 2.3 <laughs> billion of those who live in China who can't get access to Facebook, mm, right? Yeah. You know, at that point, we're down to 5 billion, right? <laughs> uh, subtract another 2 billion who do not have the means to engage with digital technology in any way. These are the poorest of the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, they are concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa, <clears throat> in parts of Asia, 
uh, in parts of South America, but scattered around the world, right? And including many millions in the United States who just don't have the means. Um, so, uh, you know, at, at that point, we are close to three billion people. Now, three billion people happens to be the number of regular users of all Facebook products. And so not just mm what they call blue, the mothership of Facebook, but Instagram and WhatsApp. So of the top six, like the six most powerful, most popular social network platforms in the world, four of them are owned by Facebook. They are in order Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook Messenger. The only two that are not owned by Facebook, YouTube, which is owned by Google, which is number two at 1.9 billion, and WeChat, which is the most popular and powerful social network service in China, right? So there's no direct competition between WeChat and Facebook. This generational divide, first of all, we have to remember that, well, let me put to the side, first of all, I reject all generational labels. I think there's no actual empirical support for any of those (laughs) distinctions. But I would say that one thing we have seen is that younger people in North America have been deferring their Facebook registration and use, deferring, Mm. not avoiding, right? Because 14-year-olds tend to become (laughs) 25-year-olds. It's something that happens, right? And and, and Facebook is of more use to people who have loved ones in other cities, cousins who are getting married, Mm. um, uh, who have high school friends who now live in other countries. uh, And that tends to happen later in life. So really what we're seeing, this idea of a generational lag, first of Mm. all, really is only North America. So we're talking about a very small slice of the world. Yeah. 14-year-olds in India, 14-year-olds in South Africa, 14-year-olds in Kenya are signing up for Facebook as soon as they can because they need it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of what I was trying to get at was the way that Facebook as a corporation has has had these kind of ripple effects on the way that other media organizations right. operate. And so we'll definitely get into that a bit when we start to talk about Facebook's business model. And I, I would and so add, I get, oh well, yeah, there's go ahead. one other like uh, yeah. thing to that, right? So um, even if you don't have a Facebook account, Facebook's tracking you. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> so if you're using any other service on your phone, if you if you have any Facebook owned apps like Instagram mm. or WhatsApp, Facebook yeah. is tapping into your phone, into your address book. Um, they have a dossier on you. Mm. They know everything about you and they know everything about everybody like you. So it almost doesn't matter if you're not using Facebook. Facebook right. wins anyway. <laughs> That's good to know. So my mom, who's proudly never had Facebook, if she's communicated with me on WhatsApp, She's still being tracked, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. she'll be comforted to know that. Um, so just kind of picking up on what you were what you've said a little bit about the good of Facebook, right? About mm-hmm. the way that like a car, it does provide a lot of, you know, sort of warm, fuzzy, uh, convenient things for us. Um, you write at the end of your introduction that you say, I've lived my life through Facebook. Facebook has been the operating system of my life. And I'm wondering, I would love to hear from you a little bit more specifically about, you know, what has Facebook given you in a in a positive sense, even as you've obviously you know started to learn about some of the darker aspects of it? I mean, one of the things I I, I can uh, tell you a story about how, um, just in a local sense, a few years ago, the gym that I belonged to, in one of the yoga classes, um, a handgun fell out of a person's bag, and mm. there was immediate uproar among the members. Like, why is there a hand a handgun in someone's bag? 
And it turned out that the management had changed the policy, basically allowing hand, concealed handguns in the building, none of which has been informed of this. We have, you know, there's childcare in that building. Like this was thoroughly, and it's yoga, right? It's yoga. Right. Why is there a, why do you need a weapon <laughs> in yoga? Right? Uh, it seems very anti-yoga, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, not very ohm. So we, you know, a lot of us immediately started organizing using Facebook. And within two days, we mm. got our gym to change the, the policy. Now, in prior to Facebook, in the absence of Facebook, that organizational process would have been harder, not impossible. We probably could have done it in a week. We mm. would have had, you know, email and and phone uh, conversations and right. petitions. Um, and maybe a protest outside. As it turned out, this barrage of Facebook activism that made hundreds of people call the office and complain changed the policy rather quickly. Again, Facebook was not necessary, but it really helped and got the job done. Now, if I happened to be a member of a white supremacist organization, I would have had just the same amount of ease organizing, right. uh, you know, a political action that might have scared the hell out of some people. So, you know, it, it just so happens I was against guns in that moment, uh, which right. is kind of good. So I don't want to oversell it as this is a progressive process. It does mean, though, that if you want to get something done, Facebook is terrifically powerful. Now, if I can just add one more thing, I um, my my father just passed away and mm. and I announced his demise on Facebook as as people do these days. I have found it to be a remarkably powerful and I don't know, pleasant's the wrong word. It's hard to use a word like that in the wake of losing someone. Uh, um, uh, a warming um, mm. uh, uh, process. And again, not just because it, Facebook has allowed so many of my friends to express their condolences and their appreciation and their love for me and for my family without having to text me <laughs> or call yeah. me, which I, you know, like I, I love the texts and calls I got. I'm glad I don't have 200 of them. I'm glad I have 10 of them, you know? Um, and that's, that's, that's nice, right? It's a nice way to sort of manage these moments. Yeah. And it let me write a few sentences about him and, and, and those, you know, there aren't a lot of platforms. There aren't a lot of means of communication that allow you to do something so personal and yet so public yeah. And sort of manage the public side of mourning quite so well and and really honor my father. And so at this very moment, I'm I've spent much of the day on mm. Facebook because I'm getting so much love out of it. Uh, and I know my, my sisters are experiencing the same thing. My mother's experiencing the same thing again before Facebook, when I would lose a loved one, it would feel a, like a lonelier experience. Right. Right. Um, it's how we did things for centuries. So who, you know, clearly wasn't that bad, but, uh, but it's, it's kind of nice. Yeah. Well, again, I'm sorry to hear about your father and it's strange. I actually had a extremely uh, similar experience to that today too. I lost a friend recently and did a similar thing where I posted and I was looking through the replies today. And there's a way in which Facebook has changed our understanding of quote unquote friends to also include these very loose ties. It can (laughs) actually be really, nice in those moments. You know, I had comments from my high school French teacher and, you know, someone who babysat my brother and me when we were kids. And in a sense, those messages are so meaningful too, because, you know, it's not just my mom and my best friends, but it's like, wow, actually there's this person who remembers me from 
high school French, you yes, know, yes, <laughs> from yes. when I was eight and who's thinking thoughts and who read that thing. So I think the kind of gestures of public mourning, I think, is a perfect encapsulation of how Facebook can be really intimate and, and useful right. and consoling in moments. Um, and thank you for sharing that. So we've been kind of talking about the the warm and fuzzy aspects of it, but I think that to understand some of the darker aspects, as you show really clearly in your book, we really need to understand the business model, right? The way that I think that when we're on Facebook, we experience it as a surface, right? We see what we see, but we're not really thinking about why material is being presented to us or what Facebook's incentives are for doing so. So how is Facebook making money off of us? What's its business model? Right. Look, if you um, if you watch an episode of Mad Men, you will see yeah. <laughs> what what advertising used to be. Right. Mad Men. <laughs> Mad Men is faith based advertising. Right. It is. It's storytelling. Right. It's mm. like this this process of women in America really want this bra and be they want this bra <laughs> because they want this life and this bra will lead to this life. And we're going to present a series of images and words and stories that promise fulfillment in life through this bra. And that, you know, that sort of stuff was common in the late 20th century because every car dealer and every shoe store and every restaurant and every movie theater had to buy ads that might or might not have worked. Mm -hmm. Google and then Facebook created an advertising system that has two features. Number one, you never pay for an advertisement that does not generate a click of interest, mm -hmm. right? So there's actually something to measure. You don't have to pay for ads that hit people's eyes and don't make them do anything. Number two, the price of that ad is based on a complex algorithm and auction system. And, and the third part of that is that the ad is always targeted to someone who has already expressed interest in that mm -hmm. subject. So, you know, if I run a company that sells ostrich skin cowboy boots and my <laughs> choice is to buy a quarter page ad in the, uh, in the local newspaper, uh, or let's say I'm, I'm based in Fort Worth, Texas, right? So this is a city that has a lot of cowboy boot users per capita relative to the rest of the country, right? I could buy a quarter page ad in, in the forward star telegram, or I can go on Facebook and Facebook will help me identify the very sort of person who might buy ostrich skin cowboy boots, which by the way, run between four and $500 a pair, right? So they are a niche product. And uh, Facebook and Google are the best ways to do it because they won't waste your money trying to find people who won't buy ostrich skin cowboy boots. Right. And you also show in your book, just to add something that you can also filter people out, right? Because you don't want to be advertising them to right. vegans, you know, That's right. um, or anti-leather crusaders. So just the degree of micro-targeting that is possible by that filtering is, is right. what is tr really unprecedented. That's right. And in addition, um, you can you can use that advertising system to narrow your audience to highly specialized people by picking attributes. You can even pick you know, gender and religion and political attitude in all these different ways. Uh, so if you're trying to advertise this podcast, for instance, you can go onto Facebook advertising and find people with a certain level of education right. or people who have expressed interest in certain subjects and and very accurately find an audience of three to 5,000 people who might benefit from hearing about this podcast. Now, the other way to do it is, and the way that um, most political campaigns do it and many products do it, is they will have um, – 
uh, an email list. Like if I run a boot shop in Fort Worth, I'm going to have an email list of customers who have come in and it might be 200 people long or 2000 people long. And I can mm-hmm. take that email list and put it in a spreadsheet and upload it to Facebook and Facebook will generate what it calls a lookalike audience. People with the exact same attributes as the people who are likely to walk in my shop. And I might start with 2000 email, email uh, addresses, but they could generate as many as 10,000 more names for me, mm-hmm. maybe more around the country. And then I can directly go after those people and they're, they are much more likely to want my boot than, uh, than someone I just peppered uh, or someone I even tra- attracted demographically. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. I'm Caitlin Zaloom. And I'm Sharon Marcus, and we are the founding editors of Public Books. One of the reasons we started Public Books was we were both tired of opening up the available book reviews 10 years ago and experiencing all different kinds of rage at who was being left out of the conversation. The books that weren't (laughs) being reviewed, the people who weren't getting to do the reviewing, and I thought, you know, instead of being mad all the time, I can just create the change I want to see in the world. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I laughed at rage because it's I, I laughed at the truth of it while also worrying about whether or not rage was going to sell. <laughs> I'm fine with being associated with rage, and I don't think it's going to alter my image in the world. If we're talking about the advertising aspect of it, I think someone could listen to what you're saying and say, you know, that's great. I mean, everyone wins, right? I get marketed just the stuff that I want and the companies can be more efficient in how they allocate their advertising budget. So that's great, right? So I'm wondering if you can then help us understand how that translates to some of the things that start to feel uh, disconcerting that you write at length in your book about, you know, whether it's our filter bubbles, our confirmation bias, our information ecosystems being fundamentally shaped in a new way by Facebook. Right, right. Yeah, you know, uh, all these years I was growing up in the wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I kept hearing that capitalism and commerce were not only compatible with democracy, but co-evolutionary, right? They were, ru- they were running together. And, you know, as soon as we introduced market economics to China, it'll become de- democratic, right? I think we've pretty much unraveled that completely. And Facebook shows it really strongly, as, as does Google, right? So what is great for selling ostrich skin cowboy boots, which is also really great for selling Donald Trump or Joe Biden, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, is not necessarily good for democracy because democracy mm-hmm. demands different things. Mm-hmm. We in a demo- in a democratic republic want people to be able to hold their candidates and their political organizations accountable. So, uh, not to idealize the era of television and radio advertisements, but at least if I were running for city council and I. let's say I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I live, right? And there are a Mm -hmm. lot of small, small businesses, at least there were a month ago. And I decide that I want to unfairly target my opponent as a shoplifter or pro shoplifting, right? And I decide to run like radio ads or television ads saying, you know, uh, Annie Galvin, my opponent is a notorious shoplifter. uh, And 
I put those ads up on television and radio. Well, the next day, um, you know, Annie Galvin and all of her people know about it and they're immediately striking back at me. The <laughs> local newspaper, the local radio, right? They're all coming after me for making this thing up. There's some accountability there. It may not be effective yeah. accountability, but there's, you know, and we can actually have that feedback system, right? But if I were to do that on Facebook or Facebook ads and only target small businesses and say, you know what, you should watch out for this Galvin. Uh, we got a problem <laughs> here. Yeah, some shoplifting yeah, yeah. issues, right? <laughs> the, those ads would disappear. They're, they're ephemeral. Only the people who might be swayed by those ads would even know they existed. I could deny them. You know, that in itself is bad. And we know that the Trump campaign in 2016 poured out thousands of highly specific targeted ads at African-American communities around the country, especially in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, trying to reduce enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and all you have to do is knock a few thousand people away from voting on Tuesday. Right. And lo and behold, you can swing a state. Uh, you know, there were ads targeted very specifically at Men of Haitian descent in South Florida, reminding them that Bill Clinton had gone down to Haiti after the last earthquake and promised all these reforms and all that they got was cholera. That was a pretty powerful message to send to men mm -hmm. of Haitian descent who might already be reticent about voting for a woman for president. And, you know, again, all you need is a few thousand. Florida went to Trump by 110,000 votes. The entire Electoral College was settled by three states. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by 78,000 votes. You move a thousand votes here or there with a small targeted ad, a specific uh, segment of the electorate. And all you have to do is convince them not to vote for the other person. And who knows, you could swing a state like Wisconsin, which was razor thin. It was less than 1% that decided Wisconsin, right? So that kind of stuff, that's really bad for democracy, not just because Trump won. That's a whole other story. It's bad for democracy because our candidates and their communication with voters should be uh, accountable for criticism and response. So that's one of the big problems with the way this advertising system undermines democracy. Right. Yeah. And that was something kind of a revelation that I experienced from your book. I think a lot of the discourse around Facebook in the election, you know, was about these bots and trolls had really fiercely motivated people to do something actively, but the idea that it's so easy to actually dissuade people from doing something like right, voting, right? right? It's it's in a sense easier to just nudge people to stay at home, right, than it maybe is to throw their support behind someone and that that um, dissuading nudge can be just as consequential. So I thought that was a really interesting just like an, a slightly different frame for looking at Facebook's effect on the election that I hadn't thought about before. So yeah. it's also um, important to get beyond yeah. an election, right? Elections attract our attention because they matter, right? I mean, Donald Trump's president and the whole world's falling apart as a result. So it's real easy to go, oh my God, what happened with Trump? Let's tell, tell the story of Facebook and Trump. And I, in this book, I tried to do bigger stuff than that. I think the long-term effects of what we really should worry about, right? Had Hillary Clinton run a better campaign on Facebook, she might be president today. Maybe Joe Biden will get it together and he will be president. It won't change the fact that Facebook is bad for democracy. Now, ultimately, 
all of that shenanigans we saw in 2016, the Russian interference, right? Yes, it was hoping to move people toward voting for Trump or against Clinton, against Clinton. But the larger goal, which is their long-term gain, and it's not just Russians. There are lots of domestic forces trying to do this too, and we see it coming from the White House right now, is to just make us give up. Make us give up on the potential yeah. of actually using democratic politics to solve problems and enhance people's lives, even among people who differ, right? And and that is what we're really in danger of losing. And we see it happening in the Philippines and we see it happening in India and Brazil and we see it happening in the United States and Hungary and Poland. And it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really key point that it's not necessarily that Facebook is tipping the scales the way that we like or we don't, but it's it's these bigger institutions that that are being lost. And I mean, it's interesting what you were just saying, because I feel that I've been a little bit of a victim to that, because when I hear you say terms like democracy and deliberation and civic participation, those those terms have actually started to feel very abstract and right. almost undefined in a way. So I would love to ask you if you could just really specifically pinpoint, like, what are the top, let's say, three qualities of democracy. What do you see as democracy that yeah. is being lost by Facebook? <laughs> Three might right. not be enough, but um, I've forgotten what democracy is apparently, so can you help me understand? <laughs> well, look, at its most abstract, democracy is a system of government that is responsive to the will and concerns of the voters. Uh, deliberative democracy or uh, Republican democracy, essentially, right? The notion mm -hmm. that we can have institutions that help us um, convene and vet our differences and our disagreements and work towards something, some response that makes sense to a problem. So one of the examples I like to bring up when I give talks about this is that in, in 1969, the Cuyahoga River outside of Cleveland caught on fire. And it wasn't the first river fire in the 20th century. In fact, there had been many but it was the last river fire of the 20th century. And one of the reasons it was the last river fire of the 20th century is that people cared enough. So between 1969 and 1972, Congress passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and started the EPA. And President Nixon, a free market Republican, signed all of those into law. And we as a country took seriously the problem of water pollution and decided – that even though many of us supported free market responses and many of us supported state-based responses and others supported uh, tort-based restrictions on companies that polluted, we had to do something. And we, we worked through those arguments. Congress worked through those arguments. We created the structure of the EPA. All of that happened because in 1969, for all of its faults, this country was able to talk about a problem in a mature and informed way without being – flustered by sophistry without being mm. we would think of it as trolling without trolling people could actually argue it out in i don't know good faith maybe too strong um argue it out without having to be swept away but right now like that was one river on fire right now the whole world is on fire and we can't get to step two about the way to respond to that because every time we want to talk about it we get swept away by sophistry by trolls and the inability to actually discuss complex issues upon a an agreed upon set of facts mm -hmm. and facebook's not the reason but facebook is a part of the problem right and that that's to me starts to kind of echo what you were 
talking about at the very beginning about motivation versus deliberation. And I think I'm sure that when you have these conversations, you know, the natural final question is, what do we do about it? Yeah. Um, but, and you've written extensively in The Guardian and, and a little bit in your conclusion and elsewhere about, you know, the the capacities we might have to regulate um, or to design policy, um, to break up some of these big companies. But I'd actually like to ask the question a little bit differently. And if you could just kind of wave a wand and just change Facebook, just make it look different, make wow. it, you know, <laughs> behave differently than it currently does. What would you change kind of from a design perspective and operational engineering perspective? Like yeah. what would your ideal vision of Facebook be that would both allow you to grieve your father and see the nephew who, you know, was valedictorian, but that would also actually promote these values of democracy that you've described so eloquently. So if I worked for the company, I would have an imperative to continue to do what's best for Facebook. And therefore, I wouldn't change much. I would actually keep it being just as destructive, <laughs> that's right? so depressing. I mean, that's the way it is, right? The, nobody who yeah. works for these companies has an incentive to do anything against the interests right. of the company, which is why we have the state, right? We have the state to regulate and limit yeah. the uh, the negative externalities of whether that negative externality is a water pollution that starts a fire in a river or a negative externality is um, idea pollution that undermines democracy. You know, if I had a magic wand, it would be a policy wand and mm. I would severely restrict the ways in which companies could track and keep data about our interests and behaviors. Yeah. I would severely limit what companies could find out about us and how long they could keep it. Mm. Uh, to the point where it would it would decrease their ability to respond to us through the newsfeed, through the YouTube recommendation engine, and through their advertising platforms. This would have the secondary effect of making these companies poorer. They would have to fight harder, but it would level the playing field in the advertising world a bit. If we still have mm. newspapers coming out of this depression, you know, maybe they might have a little bit more of a chance to compete and build their own advertising systems rather than have all the money rushed to Facebook and Google. But more than that, it would mean that no company like Facebook or Google could ever leverage a decade or more of private information that gives them an inherent and unfair advantage over any insurgent company. If you want to make the next Facebook, you can't because you don't have a decade of personal information to build upon right. to build these services, right? And then tell advertisers and then tell uh, people they should spend time with it because it'll be more satisfying. It just won't, right? So there aren't a lot of policy tools we can use. Antitrust is actually a lot weaker than people seem to think in this matter, and I haven't yet seen a model of what uh, an effective antitrust intervention with Facebook or Google would be. Um, data protection in the European sense is already starting to seem to be inadequate. I think we need a much more bold and more radical approach. In the political realm, there is one reform I would love to see Congress put forth. No one's really taking it seriously, and I doubt our Congress is going to take it seriously soon. But that is basically, and this would not be a First Amendment problem if it's properly structured, no campaign ad should be allowed to be targeted at any group smaller than the district in which the election is running. So if mm -hmm. you and I are running against each other for city council, I cannot aim an ad at African-Americans and exclude everybody else. I cannot aim an ad at women and exclude everybody else. I cannot aim an ad at small business owners and exclude everybody else. All of my ads must be structured for the electorate at large and must appeal to the electorate at large, mm. right? Making micro-targeting in political ads illegal 
would should totally be legit. Now, who knows what this current Supreme Court would do with that? But whatever, you know, it's worth a shot because that would uh, mitigate a lot of the problems with the ways political ads work. But again, that is only one small problem of all of the anti-democratic effects that Facebook has on the world. Yeah, that's I have not heard that one. I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, it goes back to the point about accountability. I mean, at least you have to be accountable to a community outside the very narrow community that you're able to target currently. Um, So the closing question is, what do you think is the next big question that we need to be asking and think about as we study what platforms like Facebook are doing to society and democracy? Yeah. Um, The fact is Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple, they all want to be the operating system of our lives going forward. Mm -hmm. They're not struggling anymore to be the operating system of our phones or our computers. That's done. They want to be the governance of our thermostats, of our refrigerators, of our cars, of our clothes, of our eyeglasses, of our insulin pumps, right? They want to be embedded in every part of our lives. There is no online, offline distinction anymore, and everybody in Silicon Valley knows it, and they know that once you have data flowing through everything, everything is governable, they want to have that monopoly power. The big question for us is, how can we defend ourselves? against these big, powerful oligopolies that are struggling to become the operating system of our lives. I think that is the big challenge of the next two decades. Um, I think our current public health and economic crisis makes that an even harder fight than it was just a few months ago. Uh, yeah. These companies are going to become more important. They may be the only ones standing in some fields. And uh it's going to become more imperative to distill this argument as not about fake news and right. not about privacy per se. It is about the operating system of our lives. Is that operating system going to be our human societies, families, and individual minds? Or is it going to be Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, or some combination? Yeah, that's great. And hopefully, I mean, I think hopefully it would be more persuasive to frame it as such. I mean, at the risk of of sounding melodramatic, but really is an issue of our humanity. You know, I mean, it's, it's, this is all a question about the choices, the agency that we have to maneuver through the world and through our lives. And it's not just the fact that we're staring at our phones too much. It's vastly expanded beyond that. So uh, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Siva Vaidyanathan for sharing his thinking about the significance of Facebook in the modern age. You can find links to his work at publicbooks.org slash podcast. There you'll also find an interview with Siva from our interview series called Public Thinker, as well as a list of further readings about the internet curated by our guests in case you want to read further or use this material in your classes. You can follow this show and public books at public books on Twitter to learn more about the work that we do. And I promise there will be more deliberation than motivation on our feeds. We'd be so grateful if you would subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. And next time on Public Books 101, I talk to the brilliant scholar Alice Marwick whose work has covered basically everything interesting about the internet. 
We talk about why it feels like smartphones are listening to us, even though Alice thinks they probably aren't, and also about how privacy violations impact marginalized communities. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Public Books 101, The Internet, as we continue to wonder, what is the internet doing to societies? This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson and Kelly Dean McKinney. It was edited by Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project, and to the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, where I am a public fellow. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Thank you.